Well, hello and welcome to The Rebind, a podcast about putting all the pages of the Bible back together. On today's first of the month interview, we talk with Jonathan Wright about his research on the temple in the Bible. It's not only going to be a great way of helping us understand Ezekiel and the temple visions that we're looking at in The Rebind, but it's also just a great way of helping us to put our Bibles together and think through how that story unfolds. Well, I'm very excited today to have Jonathan Wright join us for the first of the month interview. Jonathan and I have been great friends ever since we both came to Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. But while I was working on my Master's of Divinity, he had already gotten his from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and was working on his THM, or a Master in Theology instead. And now he's taken it a step further and working on his PhD at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary studying Union with Christ in the Gospel of John. A lot of what he'll share with us today actually comes from his current research. So you're listening to the best and the brightest here on The Rebind. In fact, Jonathan has got his own podcast. He is a podcast host for the New Books in Biblical Studies for the New Books Network of Podcasts. So you can check that out as well. Jonathan, I miss our racquetball sessions, but I'm glad you're here. I do too. Yeah, this is the next best thing, sadly. It will, it will be a new form of back and forth. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Mm. Well, I really want to dive into our conversation about the temple, but first, I think you should tell our listeners about your famous story of the monks and their jam. Oh, man. Yeah. I, well, I grew up near Boston. <laughs> are you seriously want me to tell this story? <laughs> yes, go for it. <laughs> and there are there are these monks uh, in, I think they're in Massachusetts, and they uh, they actually, like, to make money, they will go and they'll pick their own berries, and mm. they'll make jam. Um, mm. And so they'll sell it, and you can go to the, you can go to the grocery store, so they, you know, they make the jam, um, and then they sell a bit. Uh, okay. Okay. There's the All right. Well, anyway, <laughs> I still I hope that joke is still respectful. I'm not sure. Anyway, um, that is uh, that's where I'm from, from the area. There you go. Well, why don't you just tell us a little bit more about yourself? How you developed passion for biblical studies? Yeah, totally. Um, one of the the most impactful moments of my life happened at the ripe age of 16 when my family packed up and moved to Japan for about a year. Hmm. And my, we'd done this a few times before, um, but this was like the most vivid in my memory because I was leaving friends, leaving life as I knew it. And Japan just kind of became, in my personal history, like a time of a lot of reflection. And uh, there are a lot of things about Japanese culture that's pretty depressing and sad. And I was able to make a lot of great friendships with missionaries. And through that process, got to see what ministry was really like and and to see the way that the gospel offers hope to all these people who are looking for joy and hope and and peace in the wrong places. Um, Mm -hmm. So it was kind of through that lens that I really got interested in ministry. And then from there, just really started seeing um, how central the Bible is to ministry. So I, I really, I just started in undergrad and then kept up and I just, I love it. Um, mm. I love looking at a, a certain 
portion of text or looking at a theme and then just like doing the deep dive and reading all I can and trying to emerge from that with something that's helpful and practical. Well, it sounds like you've been doing a lot of that with uh, the book of John and the gospel of John. That's uh, your PhD topic. Tell us a little bit about what it is that you're studying. Yeah. So John just has a lot of crazy statements of God through Jesus indwelling believers. And everything I loved about the Gospel of John kind of just ignited even a deeper passion to start trying to figure out, like, what is John's idea of union? Is it um, mm-hmm. exactly like Paul's? Is, like, is it, uh, like, what's, what's the point of being one with Jesus? And why does Jesus pray that his people would be one? And, and what's the background mm-hmm. for that? And then how does that relate maybe to John's epistles and maybe even Revelation? So... For listeners who may not be familiar with the union with Christ phrase, what's a summary of what we'd say that mean? Yeah, that believers are one with Jesus. It can be framed in so many different ways about what it really means to be one with Christ or to be united with him. But I think it's simply that believers are in Jesus and Jesus is in believers. If people who aren't Bible geeks are looking for something on union with Christ. There's a guy named Rankin Wilborn who wrote a really excellent, helpful book called Union with Christ. Hmm. Um, and he just begins right off the bat by saying that we this is something that doesn't come naturally to us. We need our imaginations to be at play here because it is such a weird concept. Hmm. Um, so I just I'd commend that one cool. for anybody who wants to dive into this. Nice. So uh, we've been talking a lot about the temple in the book of Ezekiel on the Rebind. We looked at chapters 8 through 11, where the glory of the Lord leaves the temple in a vision. And, and now, from, from what I hear, you've been doing some research on the role that the temple plays as the story of the Bible unfolds. And I think for, for most of us listening, the temple is not the first thing that we would pick for a Bible study topic. It's, it's totally foreign it's a thing of the past. It's an irrelevant part of that Israelite culture stuff that we don't have to worry about anymore. So why would you think that the temple is an important thing for us to understand today as we read and live out the Bible? Yeah, totally. This is a great question. Um, well, first, like, you know, as we're approaching the Bible, we do have to remember that we're time traveling. So mm-hmm. we're going into another culture and another language And so for us as Western Christians in the 21st century, we don't think that much about like a temple structure. Yet for Jews, I would just say this, this is central to their identity as people, like, you know, for their religion, everything. Hmm. So the reason why I think it's significant is that actually, I think the whole story of the Bible can be seen in God's relationship to his people. Um, a relationship that was once united in the garden, then was broken. And then the story of the Bible lays out a gradual reuniting and there's a reunion. So, I mean, I think all of that then kind of lands in the temple. It's the place where God's people have access to him. It's a place where Yahweh's name dwells, where his presence is, is housed, where sins are forgiven, prayer is made and heard, and then, you know, diseases are healed and agricultural prosperities, like all these different things uh, are inside the temple. So it is, it's part of that divine storyline of how um, God gets closer and closer to his people. 
Well, okay. So you seem to be describing the temple in a way that is bigger and and, and more relevant and mind blowing than just this sort of ancient building. So that all sounds really profound, but as an average Christian, like I haven't really heard a lot about the temple in church or in books. So how do I know that I can really trust you about that? Like what, why don't you put some meat on that claim? Can, can you maybe walk us through how the temple shows up in the Bible as its story unfolds? Totally. This is honestly, this blew my mind when <laughs> I first started reading this, but all right. So I think it starts with Eden or okay. delight garden of Eden first was a sanctuary. All right. So let's just put a pin in that. The Garden of Eden was a sanctuary. This is a place where God's presence like lived. Mm-hmm. Um, even the verb to walk back and forth is used elsewhere to describe God's presence later in the tabernacle and temple. So that's from Genesis 3.8 to Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 23, stuff like that. But then also both Eden and the temple or tabernacle had entrances facing the east. Hmm. Then they both had uh, a tree of life, so to speak, in the middle of each. Uh, In the temple, it was called the menorah. Um, And then the tree of the knowledge of good and bad was in the garden. Hmm. And then there are even more similarities, like Adam is told to serve uh, and work and and then to keep the garden, Genesis 2.15. And the same commands are given to the Levite priests in the tabernacle and temple in Numbers 3 and eight and 18. Hmm. So just like Adam, the first priest mediating God's presence, the the Levites then um, kind of maintain the priority of worship. But then also a, a river flows out of Eden, Genesis 2.10, just like Ezekiel's temple vision in um, 47. And also Eden is on an elevated place on what we could call a mountain because it has a river flowing from it and then it divides. So it needs to start at a higher altitude um, and then Ezekiel 28 actually describes Eden as a garden mountain sanctuary. Hmm. And then also God speaks in both Eden and the tabernacle. So, so there's just like so many connections that when you put those things together, you're like, okay, so Eden is a sanctuary. But then next, I would then say that the tabernacle, which kind of shows up in Exodus 25, is a tent where God's people are able to then serve Yahweh in this dwelling place, in this kind of temporary um, structure. Hmm. So Yahweh's presence is then localized uniquely so that people can meet with him. And all this is set up so that God can live and commune with his people um, in this holy space. It's on the move, you know, it's mobile as as God's people are walking everywhere and Hmm. um, all that fun stuff. So then, so there's the tabernacle. So that's like pin number two. Then the third one, I would say is then the actual brick and mortar temple. Hmm. So you know the story, David's like, hey, God, you should have a temple. And he's like, yeah, that's a a cool idea, but I want Solomon to build it. So Solomon builds this stone structure in Jerusalem, and it becomes this permanent kind of picture of God being with his people. Hmm. And it's just crazy. So when that temple's dedicated, Solomon's Solomon even recognizes that even though God lives in heaven, he says in Second Chronicles 7, that I've chosen this place for myself as a temple for sacrifices. And then in verse 16, he says, I've chosen and consecrated this temple so that my name may be there forever. Hmm. My eyes and my heart will always be there. So Yahweh promises that his name will be there, will live there. So that is the place where he... Uh, takes up an earthly residence. 
Okay, not everybody has had their sixth cup of coffee like you, Jonathan. So let's just take a second to recap. So if I understand what you're saying right, the temple shows up at like key turning points throughout the Bible's story, not even just in the background, but as like this really important way of understanding what God is doing. Mm -hmm. So even in like the very first three chapters of the Bible with the Garden of Eden and the sanctuary, it's it's all being portrayed like a kind of temple, right? That's what you're saying? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So so what might that tell us about what God is doing in Genesis 1 through 3? Well, I think that it shows God's heart in some ways that like this is a God who wants to be with his people mm-hmm. and that Eden is this really special place where both heaven and earth kind of intersect. Um and that's what paradise is. It gives us a definition of delight, which is to be in this shared space with God and to have a face-to-face relationship with him mm. in, uh, in perfect peace and security and, and joy. Wow. So then with the tabernacle, we fast forward down the line to like when the Israelites are first starting out as a people. And that's like not the full temple yet, right? Like with Solomon down the line, it's just sort of like a temporary mini temple leading up to it. Yeah. Okay. All right. I'm sorry to interrupt. I'm sufficiently caught up to speed. This is all good. So Solomon and his kids kind of get in a lot of trouble. His kingdom actually splits into a northern and southern two kind of dynasties. And basically, if you read First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, you're like, oh, gee, there's no hope for God's people. They're they're very lost. They, just like Adam and Eve, try to define right and wrong on their own terms. And just like Adam and Eve, God's presence, um, they get kicked out of that. So basically, what ends up happening is God sends judgment. These surrounding nations come in and they destroy everything and they uh, take people away. So they're in exile is what we'd call that. And during that time of exile, God's people are like, okay, well, (laughs) how will God rescue us? Like, is there any hope that Yahweh will dwell with his people again? And so during that time of exile, it's really important that we remember that Israel maintained these these hopes, these expectations that God's presence would one day again come back to a new temple, which is kind of then how we get up to speed with Ezekiel um, in chapter 44 through 48, and then even in Zechariah 2 and 14. So by the time we get to the book of Ezekiel, what we're looking at in the rebind, there had already been a temple in the past. There is already something hanging on there in Jerusalem. But when that's all destroyed, there's still this longing in the people for all that the temple was supposed to be in the Garden of Eden to come back. Yeah, exactly. And I think they held out hopes that it would be even better than before. Mm. So Ezekiel 11.20 says, this is, I think, one of the key phrases in understanding um, Ezekiel's kind of end time view of the temple and all that stuff. He says, they will be my people and I will be their God. So this people will have a new spirit and a new heart and God's sanctuary will be in Israel. Um, He says then in 37, I have kind of a longer quote here. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant. I'll establish them and increase their numbers and I'll put my sanctuary among them forever. 
My dwelling place will be, and this is a this is an important part, will be over them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Then the nations will know that I, the Lord, make Israel holy when my sanctuary is among them forever. So God's sanctuary, what he says, will be over all Israelites, extending over the whole promised land. So I tend to lean and, and say, I don't think this this quite seems like a small square building. I think that it has um, kind of expanding boundaries to it. So even though the temple is super important in the book of Ezekiel, and you can trace how that theme develops in the book, really it's a theme that's developing throughout the entire Bible. Yeah. And Ezekiel is fitting into a part of that there as it unfolds. Yeah. So the temple was seen in glory as a picture of, of what the Garden of Eden was like. And then in the fall with sin kind of screwing all that up, we've got the tabernacle, we've got the temple, God breaking into where we are with this temple structure to make his presence and his holiness known to us. Mm -hmm. But then that's gone, and we've got Ezekiel, and we've got these prophecies envisioning the return of all that's meant to be. Now, now fast-forwarding from Ezekiel, where do we go from there in this storyline of the Bible? So from Ezekiel, the second temple is built, as we know in Ezra and Nehemiah, about 50 years later after Solomon's temple. And that then kind of brings us into the New Testament. So Zerubbabel's temple is still standing when Jesus comes on to the scene. But the prophets don't really view that temple very uh, with a lot of, uh, <laughs> they don't love it that much. They even really call it, I think they, they say things like it, like doesn't have glory. It's uh, in some ways, I think, spiritually incomplete. And then Jesus slam dunks that by you know, bursting onto the scene and saying like, you guys have misunderstood this. Like it's, this is a, a sacred, special place where God is to be known, where, you know, it's a house of prayer. Don't turn it into anything else. <laughs> so this sounds like a great point to tell us about how all of this intersects with the book of John, uh, which is your research and, and why you even dug into the temple for the first place. So why don't you tell us how the temple relates to the book of John specifically. Why is that an important part of that book of the Bible? Yeah. So here's what I would do. So I would say, okay, the simple temp second temple is, I mean, Jesus himself calls it kind of corrupt. People aren't treating it the way that they should. The second temple in the history of the world is destroyed in 70 AD. Okay. And Jesus even uh, predicted that. Hmm. So after the Romans destroy it, Judaism just never exists in the same way ever again. Uh, we can read about that in some of their own literature. Um, and kind of left with like, what do we do? Will Is Yahweh going to dwell with his people again? Like what I would say is when it comes to the book of John, I side with scholars, uh, and this is kind of a consensus that John was written after 70 AD. So I need to kind of start there and I say, okay, if John was written after 70 AD, that means that John's writing in kind of the midst of this Jewish crisis of belief, mm. you know, of like, okay, how is God going to dwell with his people again? Like, where's the temple? And so John then, I think, has a very strong temple theme. Mm. So we, we turn, you know, on the first page of John in verse 14 of chapter one, Jesus is described as, as taking up residence among his people. So Jesus, the, the infinite word of God, 
the one who is equal with God comes and takes on flesh and he he dwells among his people. And that word could be translated that he tabernacles. Mm. Uh, it's, a, it's a similar word. It's used in the same word group of, uh, of temple and tabernacle in the Old Testament. So already John's like, hey guys, you know, listen up. This is, Jesus is, uh, <laughs> he's, he's connected to the temple somehow. And then in John 2, 13 through 25, Jesus goes into the temple and he restores right worship. He kind of shows what the temple is all about. Um, it's about prayer and coming to God and being able to know God through that space. But then in chapter 4, 1 through 42, he talks to the woman at the well and he says some pretty amazing things there. <laughs> he even says that um, that worshiping God doesn't need to be at a place. Mm. He says the time is coming and it's now here where you're not going to need to worship God at a physical building, that you'll worship him in spirit and in truth. Mm. So he's kind of taking the focus away from a brick and mortar temple. But then the last thing about John is that in chapter 13 through the end of the gospel, the temple drops out. Mm. Like there's no more mentions of the temple. And what I tried to focus on in my most kind of recent research is that in John 14, one through two, Jesus, I think, uses what is very famous in his gospel. He uses a a double meaning Mm. by saying that he is now going to prepare a house or a household for himself, that there, there's on one level, Jesus intends to talk about a physical place, like there's going to be a real heaven. But then I think on a second level, Jesus is referring to a new era where his primary dwelling place will be on earth spiritually within a group of people. Mm-hmm. That this temple is now taking on the shape of a community. And then that then relates to how John uses over and over again this verb to remain or abide. So that theme of God being with his people, his presence dwelling is now going to remain or abide in his people. Hmm. Th- those are the ways I think John just has this massive temple theme. So John's gospel is a little bit unique in the other gospels in, in, in terms of when he's writing this. He's actually writing after the Jerusalem temple is destroyed again. And there's this crisis in the Jewish community of what are we supposed to do with this? How is the temple supposed to work? How is all the stuff that God was supposed to be doing through the temple going to work? And that's where John comes in and some of the ways he describes Jesus, depicts him, and some of the things we see Jesus saying about the way that his new era he's bringing about, his new relationship with his people, actually provides what the temple was supposed to be providing for us. Yeah, totally. Hmm. It's so incredible. Wow. So, Okay, that covers John and maybe kind of like the storyline of the Bible through what's happening with Jesus. Where do we go from there in the rest of the New Testament as that story keeps going? Well, this theme is picked up by Paul a lot and Peter, um, which is interesting because they wrote before John, Mm -hmm. so we could probably say it the other way around. But Paul already has these amazing statements in like 1 Corinthians 3 and 1 Corinthians 6. 2 Corinthians 6, where he calls God's people the temple. Hmm. (laughs) So if anyone's concerned that this is kind of outlandish, just go read Paul. He he always uses it in the context of people living pure lives, Hmm. of recognizing that they are now the space where God lives. Um, 
in inside people so you know therefore like live that out realize that we have this amazing commission to be god's representatives who are indwelt who are little temples everywhere we go being kind of the ultimate fulfillment of of how god has promised to be with his people to bless all nations to have his dwelling place on earth with man yeah and then in the end in revelation we actually get this picture of new heavens and new earth where there is no temple hmm. it's not needed anymore um where god fully dwells with his people so i think i mean it's just such an amazing theme that is stretched all throughout the bible and I think it's kind of important to ask the question why, you know, even in terms of like union with Christ stuff, it's kind of this cool reality that we're like, ah, oh, sweet. And then sometimes there's just like, well, where do we go from here? Like, mm. w- what do we do with this? I think that the the temple fulfillment language, especially in John, serves to form a new community who are indwelt with the spirit um, in this union with God, in order to accomplish Jesus's ongoing mission in the world. Mm. So I think if we ever separate this understanding of like, okay, you know, the, the temple's here, we are the temple. If we ever separate that from like going and now living as Jesus did and um, now taking on the characteristics of, of God in the way that we live, then I think we've done it wrong. Mm. Our theology is wrong. Mm. So I think that mission has to really be in this conversation. Like we are indwelt to go. Michael Gorman has a great book on this called Abide and Go, where it seems almost counterproductive where it's like abide means kind of like sit around, but then go means <laughs> move. But he does a great job of explaining that we as God's people have this amazing reality in order to go and live as Jesus would have us live, hmm. continuing his ongoing mission. So what about the temple would be associated with mission or evangelistic mindset? Like, wasn't it a very local sort of a thing? Well, I mean, if you put yourself back to the, uh, you know, in the shoes of, of when the temple was built, I think that all the nations around would be able to see this huge structure literally in the middle of their city and be like, Ah, that's the temple. That's the place where where their God like can be found. Mm. (laughs) But I mean, that's not, I mean, that's not unique to Israel. You know, lots of other ancient uh, Near Eastern cultures had huge temples in the middle of their cities. But I think that it formed this idea of witness where Israel was known as the people who had this temple where their God was to be worshipped and known. Mm. So... I think the temple always has kind of had this like, this is the place where because heaven and earth overlap and because Yahweh lives here and dwells here, his presence is here, that people can go and know God and worship him. Mm. It really is about worship Mm. um, where people can know their true creator and know um, their story in light of God's story for the whole world. You know, all, all of those things I think kind of collide in the temple theme. Gotcha. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I think that it is so fundamental to the way that we view ourselves because guys, everybody wakes up, you know, in the morning and we start this kind of daily narrative about who we are and why we do what we do, you know, and the things we think about ourselves really shape the choices we make. Mm. 
you know, if you just tell yourself like, oh, I'm a procrastinator, so I'll probably just get to that later, you know, or like, mm-hmm. I'm a jock, so I'm going to go work out a bunch. Like, those are the types of things we say about ourselves. Like, our identity shapes the way we live. Yeah. Um, or you could even say, you know, our worship shapes the way we live. Like, what what things we are giving our our loves to. And that's why I think it's so important that Paul brings this up in the context of identity. Mm. He says in 1 Corinthians 3 and 6 and you know that since we are the temple, since we are the house of God's holy spirit, we're to live like it. Mm. And to live like it by turning from sin, you know, repenting, but then also to to be people who see themselves as on mission. Mm. Um and so I think that's the first kind of way that it's super practical that it it shapes our identity. Mm. You know, we are the temple and that should change the way we see ourselves. But then the second thing I think is, is crucial, which is evangelism. I think that this does actually shape the way that we, um, share the good news. Hmm. We are in evangelism. We're, we're saying, Hey, uh, neighbor, whoever, um, McDonald's person, you know, (laughs) whatever it is, come join in and see what God is doing here on earth. Like. God is building a new community, a new house where his presence is made known. And there's one king and that's Jesus. And he's given his life for us. And, and we, can, we can know him and be a part of that story here on earth by turning from our sin, trusting him, getting the Holy Spirit, and now being a part of that story ourselves. Hmm. So I think that those are the two kind of primary ways. I, I, I mean, I'd love to think about this even more, but yeah, to, to see it as shaping our identity and then shaping the way we live on mission, particularly in evangelism. Hmm. So it shapes the way we do evangelism because it shapes the way that we think of ourselves, right? Like I think it shapes the way we think about our role as being the temple of God. We, we, we stand as a place and people and message to be inviting people to witness God's presence. Totally, yeah. Yeah, especially, you know, you're welcoming people into how God is restoring the world in Jesus, which is through a new people, his, his kingdom, who are indwelt by the Spirit, who are this new household of God. Um, yeah, and that fits right into temple. Wow. Awesome. Well, Jonathan, I think this is going to do a lot to amp up our understanding of Ezekiel as we keep going. And thanks so much for sharing your research and your uh, back and forth. Uh, We've really enjoyed it here, and um, I look forward to talking with you soon. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it, Andrew. It's been an honor. 